Hey Skeptics, it's Juliana here. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to remind everyone that we're coming towards the end of the first season of The Skeptical Historian. My final episode for 2023 will be released on the 3rd of December and I'm going to be spending the holidays with my family. But fear not, I'll be returning on the first Tuesday in January 2024 with season two. Follow me down some of the rabbit holes I've discovered while writing my thesis. Enjoy special bonus content, including my first interviewed guest, and keep that skepticism sharp. Now, let's get into today's episode. It's the 22nd of November, 1963, in Dallas, Texas. It's a beautiful day, bright and sunny, without a cloud in the sky. Crowds are pressed up against police barriers, which have been set up along the streets, and they're all hoping for the same thing. To catch a glimpse of the 35th President of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, better known as JFK, and his glamorous wife, Jackie. Just the day before, JFK had recalled at a political breakfast that... Two years ago, I said that, uh, introduced myself in Paris by saying that I was the man who had accompanied uh, Mrs. Kennedy to Paris. I'm getting that somewhat that same sensation uh, as I travel around uh, Texas. On this day, the First Lady is certainly cutting a glamorous figure in a pink suit and matching hat, with a bunch of roses in her lap as she sits in the presidential limousine, waving at the gathered crowds. JFK, too, looks rather dashing, flashing his trademark grin and spreading his famous Kennedy charm as the motorcade turns into Dealey Plaza. But among the figures lining the streets, most of who are enjoying the fine weather in their shorts and dresses, is a strangely conspicuous figure. He's carrying a large black umbrella and wearing a heavy raincoat. He's watching the motorcade and as the President and the First Lady go by, he opens the umbrella and waves it above his head, glaring at Kennedy all the while and then... Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this program to bring you a bulletin from WCBS Radio News. The story, as it is just being handed to me, is datelined Dallas, Texas. It says, according to the United Press, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade today in downtown Dallas. The incident occurred near the county sheriff's office on Main Street, just east of an underpass, leading toward the trade mart the trademark in Dallas. And I'm back. That was Joe Dembo from the CBS Radio Archives. The report was from WCBS AM FM on the day JFK was shot. And as most of us will be aware, President John F. Kennedy died at 1pm Central Standard Time on the 22nd of November 1963 from those gunshot wounds. His killer, Lee Harvey Oswald, was later arrested after murdering a policeman while trying to make his escape, but was then himself killed just two days later by a local nightclub owner while being transferred to the county jail. But what about Umbrella Man? Why the hell was he standing there on a perfectly cloudless day with an umbrella? Was he just a particularly cautious person who never left the house without one? Why did he open it when JFK went past and why wave it around? Those who saw the news broadcast that day were quick to point out that 
just seconds after the man's umbrella opened, the first shots were fired from the Texas School Book Depository. It must have been a signal. Why else would anyone have an umbrella out on a beautiful sunny day in Texas at that very moment, if not to signal the gunman? It makes perfect sense. Or does it? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello, my fellow skeptics. Thank you so much for joining me. And yes, I have decided to get on the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination bandwagon. But honestly, it's got so much going for it that I just couldn't resist. But before I delve any deeper, I would like to acknowledge that I am podcasting today on the unceded and sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people. I recognise there's 65,000 plus years of history and history making and their ongoing connection to the land we now call Melbourne. Shout out also to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria where this episode is being recorded. For more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. That's slv.vic.gov.au. Now, I'm taking a bit of a different approach to the JFK assassination than other conspiracy theory episodes I've done, such as an early one on Harold Holt. I don't have time, even if I wanted to, to examine every idea under the sun about who killed JFK and why, and that's not the purpose of this episode. Because Lee Harvey Oswald, a violent, disaffected extremist, a former Marine sniper and expert marksman, killed JFK all by himself, from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, as found by the Warren Commission. His own murder at the hands of Jack Ruby two days later prevented JFK's family and the United States from ever knowing why Oswald shot JFK, although his extreme political views provide more than enough motive and allowed conspiracies to develop unchecked. Ruby himself, who was almost as narcissistic as Oswald and had a pathologically high opinion of his own innate greatness, again, something he also shared with Oswald, the men were startlingly similar, thought he'd become a hero to the American people by killing the murderer of JFK. Instead, he died in prison while awaiting a second trial, following a successful appeal of the first, which had overturned his earlier murder conviction, from complications arising from terminal cancer. It's a violent, tragic story and I understand why nobody wants to believe that the President of the United States could be shot by a lone gunman who was then murdered by an equally dangerous lone gunman without some grand plan behind it all. It all feels, well, to be frank, it feels horribly pointless. And one also has to wonder what Oswald thought would happen after he killed JFK. Certainly, he hated the man, and there were plenty of other people in Dallas who shared those views, but it's one thing to say you want to kill a man, and another to openly support the person who did it. In the wake of Kennedy's assassination, two-thirds of Americans claimed they'd voted for him in the 1960 presidential elections, but records show it was actually only one-third. Even if Oswald hadn't been murdered... 
Nobody would have been lining up to say he was a hero, and even the most vicious of Kennedy haters kept their mouths firmly shut, in public at least, until after JFK's funeral. And plenty of people point to Oswald's continuous protestations of his innocence, but really, very few murderers openly say immediately after the crime, yes, I did it. JFK was the fourth US president to be assassinated, and there's been no assassination since, although we hear about a foil plot here and there, and I imagine there's dozens of others that get foiled by the work of agencies such as the Secret Service and the FBI that never make the news. The assassination ushered in safety reforms which, in my opinion, should have already been in place. Like, presidents not allowed to ride in open-topped cars without security. I just, I have to comment briefly on this one because every person, every single person who has ever been assassinated while riding around in an open-topped car was warned before the event, don't ride in an open-topped car. Seriously, if you're a public figure and you don't want to get assassinated, don't go riding around in a damned convertible. Of course, JFK didn't know he was going to be assassinated, although his security team were very aware that it was dangerous. He was not popular in Texas due to his recent turnaround on civil rights. And his security team also wanted him to put what was called the bubble on top of the convertible, which was like a plexiglass shield where he could still be seen, um, although it wouldn't be able to be harmed, but he refused. He wanted to be seen by the people, and we all know what happened next. But what about Umbrella Man? Who was he? And what was he doing there? Well, speculation began almost immediately. After all, he was easy to spot wearing a raincoat and holding an umbrella on a perfectly sunny day. The first people to notice Umbrella Man's strange behaviour and start making connections were some researchers in the 60s. They speculated that Umbrella Man was conducting an orchestra. A deadly orchestra. An orchestra comprised of multiple gunmen. The first lift of the umbrella above his head was to signal the first shooter. The waving of the umbrella back and forward was to signal another shooter and perhaps just perhaps if those bullets hadn't found their mark there were other movements he could have made perhaps there were other shooters that day who just never got to fire this theory was thoroughly examined but was found to be well severely wanting because There was only one shooter that day. Lee Harvey Oswald operated alone. It was well established by the Warren Commission this was the case. And it's also worth pointing out, he looks very baby-faced and a bit bewildered in the photos we have of him after the assassination, but he was an incredibly dangerous, very violent man, incredibly abusive towards his wife and child. He was a political extremist. He had military training. We know that's a dangerous combination even today. And the thing about all these conspiracies about, oh, Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't acting alone or he was just the fall guy, the Warren Commission had no reason to cover up a conspiracy. In fact, they would have had reason to publish a conspiracy. If they'd found one, they would have told us. They have no reason not to. 
Because wouldn't it be better if JFK had been assassinated in some kind of grand conspiracy rather than just by Lee Harvey Oswald and his rifle? Wouldn't people feel a bit more comforted to know that it wasn't just some lone psychopath? Because if a lone psychopath can kill the President of the United States, what hope is there for the rest of us? But the fact that the Warren Commission made it clear that Oswald was acting alone, and given that we know from other research about his violence, his training, his general dislike and hatred for Kennedy and hatred for America, it's really not surprising, to be honest. The Warren Commission, of course, found that there was one shooter, but the multiple shooters theory doesn't die. I'm sure most of you listening today have heard about the man with a hat on the grassy knoll who supposedly was the one who really shot JFK. But we're not looking into that theory today. The Warren Commission examined it thoroughly and found there was no man with no hat And there was a grassy knoll, but there were also multiple people on it at the time, and none of them saw a gunman. The next theory that came along was the idea that the umbrella was not just a conductor's baton, but was in fact the prelude to the assassination. According to this idea, Umbrella Man fired a paralyzing dart at Kennedy, immobilizing him and making him a sitting duck for the assassins he was about to direct. Now, umbrellas were used by intelligence agents during the Cold War for all kinds of weird, wacky and wonderful purposes. So this isn't as strange as it sounds on the outset. However, you'd need to have, first of all, pretty good aim to fire a dart from an umbrella. And it's also worth noting the umbrella was held up first and then waved around and it was open. So Umbrella Man couldn't exactly see if he was firing at anything. And... What's more, you wouldn't have needed to fire an immobilizing dart at Kennedy to make him stuck. JFK had a really serious back injury that he'd got in World War II. And to sit up straight, he needed a brace. The day that he was assassinated, he was wearing his brace. And and possibly that was lucky for Lee Harvey Oswald because it meant JFK could not duck when the shots were fired. He was already a sitting duck. The United States House Select Committee on Assassinations didn't have much time for these theories. They speculated it was a protest symbol and umbrellas had been used in protests since 1940. And they speculated that this person was protesting Kennedy's failure to provide an umbrella of air support to Cuba during the Bay of Pigs invasion. But before we answer any of these conspiracies, the important question to ask is, did we ever identify Umbrella Man? And yes, yes we did. His name was Louis Stephen Witt. And he certainly wasn't a conductor of an orchestra of assassins. In fact, when he came forward to testify, he claimed he wasn't aware there was controversy over his actions, although this is debatable, given how much talk there was of it in the press at the time. He had initially been approached by a journalist, but he didn't want to talk to journalists, although when he was informed that his actions were being investigated, he offered to testify in front of the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978. At the time, the committee was investigating the assassinations of both JFK and civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. Witt said he'd been using the umbrella to heckle Kennedy and remind him of his father's associations with the Nazis in the pre-war period. 
To understand this, we need to go back to Britain in the 1930s and to the Chamberlain government. Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister at the time, was famous for carrying around an umbrella. It was even depicted in political cartoons, and sometimes Chamberlain was even depicted as an umbrella. Chamberlain, of course, is infamous for his appeasement policy towards Hitler as Hitler rearmed and prepared for war. And perhaps the most infamous Chamberlain moment is him hopping off the plane in Britain, waving the Munich Agreement in 1938 and declaring, this is peace in our time. How very wrong and naive. But Joseph Kennedy, JFK's father, had been a huge supporter of appeasement, partly because, like a lot of Americans in the 1920s and 30s, he was very much in favour of an isolationist policy and didn't want America getting caught up in another, quote-unquote, European war. But also because, sadly, Joseph Kennedy was very much a pro-Nazi as well. He was a vicious anti-Semite. And he saw nothing terribly wrong with excluding Jews from public life. Like a lot of pro-Nazis before the war, he backpedaled fast when it ended and people saw the lengths Hitler had gone with his horrendous concentration camps and the genocide of more than six million people. But there will always be people who remember those things. And we should remember those things. Joseph Kennedy's actions are not the actions of his son. But he also did nothing to address that. Clearly, this protester wanted JFK to know that he had not forgotten that his father had been a pro-Nazi. I don't know what JFK's views were on the Nazis. He did write a few books here and there, but there is contention around those books. And one of them was quite shamelessly plagiarised from a work with the same title in England So it's worth looking at those with a grain of salt. Although Kennedy did serve with distinction in the Pacific, certainly, which is where he got his back injury. But back to the umbrellas. In the 40s, the 1940s in Britain, people used umbrellas to protest against Chamberlain. The umbrella became a symbol of that appeasement policy. What Witt was doing in 1963 as JFK's car rode by was reminding Kennedy of his family's associations with that policy. Kennedy probably would have recognised it as well because he had been accused of appeasement himself just recently. When the Berlin Wall had gone up, Kennedy had been sent an umbrella by a group of school children in Bonn and on the umbrella was written Chamberlain. So in this case, Kennedy was being accused by these school children of appeasing the Soviet-backed East German communist regime in exactly the same way that Chamberlain had appeased Hitler and the Nazis. Given that Kennedy had only just recently floundered out of the disaster that was the Bay of Pigs invasion, this umbrella from Bonn probably hit harder than the schoolchildren might have wanted it to. But it was a well-known symbol of protest and had a very specific meaning as well. When he testified, Witt gave this fantastic quote, which I think is worth uh, saying here in full. I think if the Guinness Book of World Records had a category for people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing, I would be number one in that position without even a close runner-up. And to be honest, I think he's right. Of all the times to be waving an umbrella, 
it would be the time that the president was assassinated. But the House Select Committee on Assassinations found no evidence that Witt was involved in any kind of conspiracy to assassinate Kennedy. And why would he be? He was just an ordinary guy from Texas. But if we learned that in 1978, why does the theory still persist? I'll talk about that when I come back from this break. And we're back. Now, as I said before the break, we knew who Umbrella Man was in 1978, and he gave a perfectly reasonable explanation for what he was doing. However, as with any conspiracy, it just refuses to die. And it got new life in 1991 with the film JFK, which could generously be called a political thriller, but should be known that it is completely fictional. In fact, I think about the only truth in that movie is that JFK was assassinated. Now, in the film JFK, much is made of Umbrella Man, and he is positioned as the man who is signalling, not Lee Harvey Oswald, but all these other gunmen that I mentioned earlier. Now, the film also suggests that the assassination of Kennedy was a plot by the CIA and Lyndon B. Johnson, Kennedy's vice president, to get rid of him because he was reducing involvement in Vietnam. I see echoes of Harold Holt here. Now, let's be real. If Johnson wanted to kill Kennedy, he had so many opportunities to do it and make it look like an accident. They were frequently alone. And as for the CIA, well, really, has anyone ever gone missing or died in suspicious circumstances and the CIA not been accused of killing them? Proponents of this theory claim that the reason Johnson and the CIA assassinated Kennedy was because he was going to pull out of Vietnam. Now, it is true that in October of 1963, just a month or so before he was assassinated, he issued Directive NSAM 263, which authorised the withdrawal of a 1,000 US military personnel from South Vietnam by the end of the year. Now, a whole lot is made of this, and it is claimed that Kennedy was intending to withdraw all US military personnel based on this, and a radio address he gave where he said it was the South Vietnamese People's War and they needed to fight it. However, in the same radio address, he also said that he would continue to support them and that would conti- he would continue to send advisers if they were needed. What's really important to note about NSAM 263 is that prior to the assassination, there was no suggestion that Kennedy intended to withdraw any further advisers. He certainly wasn't keen on sending troops onto the ground in Vietnam, probably remembering the fiasco of the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba, but he was continually happy to send military advisers and to provide military backing to the South Vietnamese in what was effectively their civil war, though we of course have called it the Vietnam War since. In anything published prior to the assassination, NSAM 263 is not a big deal. In fact, Kennedy himself said the reason he was doing it was because he was frustrated with South Vietnamese President Diem and his policies of persecution against Buddhists. However, after the assassination, that order, NSAM 263, became a huge thing and people pointed to it as evidence that Kennedy had been going to reduce American involvement in Vietnam. He was going to pull out 
and Johnson and the CIA, who desperately wanted the war for reasons I really cannot get my head around, decided to kill him. It doesn't sound reasonable to me. Now, it certainly sounds reasonable in the Cold War environment that had Kennedy been planning to pull troops out of Vietnam, he would have been advised against it. Of course, with domino theory, the prevailing theory of the day, and the idea that if the US wasn't there to stop it, communism would take over the world, was very much in force. But Kennedy was reluctant after Bay of Pigs to send US troops into those kind of conflicts. Johnson didn't have the same kind of reservations. As we know, he seriously escalated the Vietnam War. But killing Kennedy just to send Americans to Vietnam? Come on. Have we really sunk so low? I hope not. So Umbrella Man was just a guy protesting. The CIA and Lyndon Johnson, had they wanted to kill Kennedy, had much easier ways to do it than framing a gunman who just happened to be in the Texas school book depository with a gun. Like, seriously, people, if someone tells you, oh, can you just go into this building with this gun here and wait for further instructions? Don't do it. Even Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't that stupid. What the conspiracists who say he was a patsy also failed to point out is that his friend drove him to work that morning and he had the gun in a package in the back seat. The friend saw it, a long, thin package wrapped up. Lee Harvey Oswald, of course, didn't tell him it was a gun. He said it was curtain rails. But the fact that somebody saw the package is very telling evidence in my mind that Lee Harvey Oswald was there with his gun in the window of the Texas School Book Depository on the sixth floor. And that was very unfortunate for JFK, for his family. And I think in some ways for America, JFK was not exactly a great president. He didn't really do much while he was in office, to be frank. But he certainly had a kind of charisma that captured people and people liked him. Nothing wrong with liking a political leader. I think it's important, though, that we don't make JFK into the kind of hero that he wasn't. He was against civil rights until 1963. He saw it as a problem. Much more prominent were the leaders of that movement, people like Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, the NAACP, the Black Panther Party, and all those other groups were much more significant in the civil rights fight than JFK was, and JFK didn't even get his civil rights bill passed. That was down to Johnson, although Johnson then completely fell off the wagon and focused heavily on Vietnam because he didn't want to be known as the American president who lost Vietnam to the communists. Kennedy also was a vicious anti-communist. Most people in the US were at this time, certainly. But to the extent that he really believed if America wasn't there to stop it, communism would take over the world. Now, certainly the Cold War is often positioned as a battle between the superpowers of the Soviet Union and the United States. But remember, nothing's ever really black and white. For instance, in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh said he was much more motivated by nationalism than communism when he decided to try and overthrow the Diem regime. And the portrayal in America of South Vietnamese President Diem as this kind of gracious leader who was trying to stand firm against the vicious Ho Chi Minh is complete fiction. Diem was almost as vicious as Ho Chi Minh to his enemies and was certainly not a democratic or fair-minded man. Not that he deserved what happened to him. So ultimately, 
What's the takeaway here, you might be thinking? The takeaway is that our brains are hardwired to make patterns. As I'm recording this right now, I'm sitting in Studio 4 looking at the beautiful yellow feature wall. And it's just a yellow wall, but already I can see patterns in the paint. I can see different lines and spirals and movement of the light over the wall. But there's really nothing there. It's just because my brain is hardwired to find a pattern. So it's looking at all the knobs and lumps and bumps in the beautiful wall and creating something. It's the same kind of thing that makes us see faces in toast or animals in clouds. And it also makes us see conspiracies where there's just protesters with umbrellas. Patterns help us make sense of the world, but they're not always sensible themselves. And it's good to ask questions, particularly when a tragic event occurs. It's good to ask, is that all? Can we do more? What should we do in future to stop this tragedy from occurring? And if a crime has been committed, it is always good, particularly in countries that do not have the best justice systems, and America is certainly one of those, to ask, have we got the right person or do we just want a conviction? But once you start going down the rabbit hole of assuming that everything is a conspiracy, that's when problems start. Because sometimes it really is just a lone gunman, an extremist, And there's nothing else to it. But that's not a comforting thought. Nobody wants to believe that. So we make a pattern to make sense of something that really doesn't make sense at all. But I think, on a final note, if we go too far with these patterns, if we create grand conspiracies from people who were not involved with each other, Witt didn't know that Oswald was up in the window of the Texas School Book Depository. Johnson didn't like Kennedy much but had no reason to kill him. The CIA had no interest either. Kennedy wasn't reducing American involvement in Vietnam. He was just withdrawing some advisors. And Jack Ruby was just a nightclub owner with a high opinion of himself. All these things happened to come together, but it doesn't mean they're connected. And I think it's an insult to the memory of JFK to suggest that there was some grand conspiracy because it removes blame from the man who did it, from the man who decided, I'm going to kill John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I am going to take a father from his children, a husband from his wife, a brother from his siblings, a son from his parents because I hate him and I hate his policies and I think he deserves to die. Lee Harvey Oswald never saw the inside of a courtroom because he himself was killed. He never shared his motives or his reasons for what he did or why he did it. And that's a shame because had he been able to speak, we might have heard that he really was just a violent, angry, narcissistic man with a pathologically high opinion of himself who hated John Kennedy enough to kill him. And that is sad. And that is what should be remembered. So, listeners, I'd like you to join me in a minute's silence now for JFK, but also for his family and his friends and the people around him who suffered from his loss. So don't turn the podcast off. We'll be back in one minute.
And thank you very much. We are back. Now that brings us to the end of today's episode. And thank you very much for joining me. As always, you can get in touch with me at my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or via social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. If you are a listener, drop me a message on either platform and let me know. I'd always love to hear from you. Join me next episode for another skeptical take on the mystery that is history and tune in wherever you get your favorite shows. Bye now. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced and hosted by me, Juliana Bias. You can find a full list of resources used in researching by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects are by Adobe Creative Cloud, Pixabay and Epidemic Sound, used under the appropriate license. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used under this license. Podcast hosting is by rss.com. See you next time, skeptics.